Visa knows that local businesses are the heartbeat of our communities. Whether they're our corner stores, our coffee spots, or our favorite shops, local businesses have always been there for us. They remember our orders. They call us by name. Always giving back, making a difference, and going that extra mile to support us and our community. And right now, more than ever, local businesses need our support. So now it's time for us to return the favor. The next time you go shopping, make the choice to shop at local businesses and look for the contactless symbol and tap to pay with the contactless visa to help support your community. Because where and how you shop matters. Visa, everywhere you want to be. Official partner of the NFL. This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays, and boy, do we have a jam-packed episode for you guys today. I'm going to be joined by Bull Wolf and Zach Berman, our two Eagles beat writers at the Athletic, a little bit later to talk about the very panicked state of the 0-2 Eagles. Then Ted Wynn is going to join us to talk about the Bruce Arians offense. It's a term that we've heard a lot, whether it's this offseason or the first couple weeks of this year as it relates to Tom Brady. We're going to dive into what that actually means and what that offense has looked like over the course of Arians' career and how it's kind of evolved and changed as Tom Brady takes over in Tampa Bay. And joining us now, I would say, I mean, pretty clearly, the first guy ever headed for Canton to join the athletic football show, many-time Pro Bowl and All-Pro offensive tackle Joe Thomas. Joe, how are you? I'm doing great, man. Just happy that the NFL football season is back, and it finally feels like fall is normal again. I it was such a nice weekend. It was crisp outside. You know, I was at a friend's house on Friday for a little Rosh Hashanah thing. We had to wear a jacket while sitting outside eating dinner. I was like, yes, it's finally September. It feel everything feels right in terms of what's going on in the football world. It was great. So we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff today. We're going to get into some of the injury stuff that's happened, especially along the offensive line that I want to ask you about. Talk about some of the other season weirdness and how it affects offensive line play. Get into some Browns talk. And then I want to talk to you about just some of your favorite offensive linemen in the league right now. Guys that are maybe a little unheralded, some younger guys. But let's start with you know what was pretty much the biggest story of the week outside of that Sunday night game and a couple other performances. And that's just kind of the wave of injuries that's happened across the league. A lot of people are tacking it up to the lack of practice time, a shortened, kind of an abbreviated offseason. I wanted to ask you about offensive line specifically, though. How do you think the lack of a ramp up, the lack of an offseason, the lack of practice time affects that position specifically when it comes to guys getting their bodies ready? Well, I think there's a lot of things you can talk about, but one is there's just a callousing effect that needs to happen within the body that training camp gives you. There's the hitting, there's the strength training, there's the day after day of building up that tolerance for the hitting and the physicality, uh, and then just building those muscles a level of endurance to be able to handle day in and day out going out and playing football, which is the most violent sport that we play in America. Um, And so because you didn't have that long period like normal, um, guys can easily go out for a week or two weeks and be fine. But as the season starts wearing on, and as you're getting into week three, four, five, 10, 12, I really think that you're going to see guys' bodies getting more tired with less of an ability to recover. And what that does is it reduces your muscles' ability to have endurance and stability 
during a game, especially as the game wears on. And when you lose stability in your joints, a lot of times that's where you get a lot of these injuries. And, you know, it's always hard to say what injury is because of potentially just bad luck or what injuries are because of maybe uh, reduced off season and the reduced ramp up and training period that bodies are used to. It's tough to say for sure, but definitely I think when you look back on this season versus other seasons, I do feel like you're going to have a higher degree of serious injuries this year as opposed to previous seasons, especially when you look at later in the season. I think, unfortunately for NFL fans, the second half of the season, I I feel like we're going to see a lot of injuries because we haven't had that long training prep period to get our bodies ready for the long and physical season. When did you feel, or was there kind of a moment, or I guess how, how did you feel each year? Like, oh, I'm ready. What, what, did, what elements of just kind of your physicality and your body lent you to understand, okay, my body is ready to do this this year? Well, it always changed year by year. So okay. obviously early in my career, I felt like I needed more practice time just from a mental standpoint and uh, also from a physical standpoint because you don't really know as much how well to train your body specifically to get ready for a season when you're a younger player. Once you get older, you just have a much better idea of, A, what my body needs and what, what do I want to do in the offseason to make sure that I'm ready for the long, hard, strenuous season that is an NFL season. Um, and so I would say early on in my career, I, I felt 20, 25 practices were really what I needed. And those are 25 padded practices. To really be ready. For How many did they have this year? 10? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, it was half that. Yeah. Like maybe 15 total practices. And that's not even talking about strictly padded practices. And they lost the ability to play games. And so you lost all those preseason games, which are really good preps for the season because you're tackling to the ground. You're doing chop blocks. You're blocking more physically than you do in practice because you're going against another guy and you're playing a game. So you're going to do some of those more risky things that are maybe in a practice not worth it. But when you're talking about a game situation, you get those in and you start to teach your body how to fall, how to roll up, how to be in a pile and pull your leg out successfully without getting hurt. And so I think you kind of lose that period of the preseason and you're going to be learning it during the regular season, which a lot of times that's, I think, when you are seeing some of these injuries happen. Obviously, you're a strange person to be talking about this with because you played almost your entire career with not even missing a snap, let alone a game. When you, I'm sure that I'm sure guys, you know, came to you during your career for advice about how to take care of their body. You know, what did you do to kind of get you to this place? How much do you kind of attribute just blind luck? your ability to do what you did and how much of it do you think were specific elements of the way that you prepared yeah man a lot of it's just luck really and i think part of it is is luck in not being in a bad position but a lot of it is just the good fortune of the genetics that you have right there's just guys that don't ever get injured i remember playing against justin smith he was one of the first guys i think ever to be (laughs) named all pro at two positions on defense defensive end defensive tackle guy was an absolute stud and we used to say if he was in a hundred car train accident he would be the only person that walked away without an injury because he's the real life unbreakable yeah dude he's unbreakable it's unbelievable like he was just that guy that no matter what happened to him he would walk away from the game and maybe throw an ice on one elbow and grab a Miller Lite for the other arm <laughs> and walk away like nothing happened. And, you know, meanwhile, uh, let, let me be clear about this. It'd be Bud Light as a Missouri person. You better get that right or he's going to come after you. 
he actually does have an Anheuser-Busch tattoo on his arm. <laughs> that's so right. That's right. <laughs> very upset if I said Miller Lite. But being the Milwaukee guy that I am, I'm a little of bit Of course. Right. You're a loyal man. Yes, absolutely. And actually, I am kind of a Bush-like guy. So don't tell anybody. <laughs> but, but, but anyways, we uh, digress. The whole point is Justin was unbreakable. And that was just a matter of his DNA. It wasn't like he had some magic water that he drank in the offseason like Tom Brady that led you to believe, like, oh, it's the water. No, it's just his DNA. Yeah, he worked hard. But a lot of it is just being very fortunate to have great DNA. Now, I will say I did try to take care of my body during the season and the offseason, and it became kind of like an obsession, especially as my consecutive streak carried on a little bit. Um, sure. And I did a lot of yoga. I was big into stretching every single day. I religiously used the hot tub and the cold tub and the cryo chamber and just about every uh, kooky exercise the trainers could throw at you to try to prevent injuries. So, I mean, I was on board with all that stuff. And I think that stuff definitely helps, especially when you're getting rolled up in a pile. To be able to have a little bit extra mobility, flexibility, being used to be in those uncomfortable compromising positions like I am in when you do yoga I think those those definitely helped and they they were as times in my career I can reflect back on very specifically that they made a big difference I remember one time it was the very last play of the game we were playing the Dolphins and Cam Wake was playing over our right tackle and he took a big wide rush and ended up trying to leap for the quarterback missed the quarterback but dove right into the back of my leg and just crippled my knee I had a grade two MCL tear the very last play of the game and it's not like we were playing for anything because we were down by like three scores at the time but uh, I think to myself like if I wouldn't have been really big on yoga and mobility at the time my, and I wouldn't have been able to pull my knee out at the right time I probably would have torn my ACL but I was lucky that I walked away with only an MCL injury so it is a combination of everything but just like everything in the NFL most of it is genes and then there's one to two percent of what you can do on top of that. So with all these injuries, I think that the offensive line is a particular interesting group because of how you have to deal with them, the level of communication, what moving parts does for that group of players compared to others. When you in your career had to worry about playing with a different guy next to you or even playing with a different quarterback and having to worry about your, the depth of your sets and everything else, what stuff becomes harder for an offensive lineman that maybe people don't consider when you're having to deal with a lot of moving parts up front? Well, it's just the, the communication issue, right? Like the best communication is a one-to-one communication, but you, you can't have that on the offensive line because there's five guys. A lot of times the communication is coming from the quarterback. And so it's like sometimes it becomes a game of telephone, right? The quarterback gives it to the center, but in an, a loud environment, the center then is trying to give it to the guard who's trying to give it to the tackle who's trying to give it to the tight end. And sometimes when it's nut cutting time and it's really loud and you can't hear what's going on, there can be a little bit of panic and maybe the wires get crossed a little bit. Um, but it is interesting listening to the offensive lines this year because there hasn't, been, yeah, there hasn't been a lot of penalties. There hasn't been a lot of miscommunications. And I'm going to chalk that up early on in the season, at least right now, to the fact that there isn't a lot of fans in the stands. And in some cases, there's no fans. So it, it's interesting listening to those guys communicate because they don't have to deal with a lot of the issues that they normally do where they're trying to shout – and listen and communicate over a really loud amount of crowd noise. Uh, and a lot of times stuff does get a little bit confused. And so the nonverbal almost becomes as important as other things. Like offensive line pass calls are generally kind of simple, like either go left or go right. And so all the calls are generally like an L call or an R call. 
Um, but a lot of times if you can't hear each other, you just point. And because if you know the protection and you know the center's pointing left, that usually means he's going left in some manner. Uh, and so you can kind of use that nonverbal to sort through what it is if you have some of the information like what the front is, what the defensive alignment is, and what the protection call is. Um, so it, it's multifaceted when you're up on the line as an offensive lineman. What do you think is going to be harder in terms of kind of keeping things away from the defense when you, they can hear everything? Are there elements that you've seen so far where it feels like the defense is kind of able to react to calls and read into stuff that they wouldn't be if people were playing with silent counts or the noise was a little bit louder? Yeah, so this year, early on in the season, we mentioned the offensive lines have looked pretty good, right? The communication's been pretty solid, not a lot of penalties, but they're, they're going to, I think, have some challenges as the season wears on because as a defensive lineman, you're sitting up there, and a lot of times, no offense to defensive linemen, but they don't have the most complex jobs on the field. <laughs> and a lot of times it is kind of like, hey, I either go left or I go right. I got the A gap or I got the B gap, and then I go find the ball. So they're just sitting at the line of scrimmage listening, and they're absorbing all that information. And as uh, much intelligence as they lack being defensive linemen, uh, you only play D-line if you're not smart enough to play O-line, by the way. I'm not sure if you knew that. But anyways. I, I, I've uh, heard that, yes. So they're just sitting at the line of scrimmage and they're absorbing that information. And as they hear the same calls over and over again, they're starting to figure things out, especially those veteran guys who've been around a long time. And so as an offensive line, I think they're going to have to start changing their calls a lot when they get up there. And you're going to see the veteran offensive lines that have been together a lot. They might actually start using those calls against the defense. It's kind of like late in training camp when you've been going against your D-line for mm -hmm. 30 days in a row. You, they know your calls, you know their calls, and you start messing with them a little bit where you start giving them dummy calls to try to get them to go one way or the other to try to help yourself depending upon what the blocking scheme is. So I'm excited to kind of see the game within the game and start listening to that side of things as the season wears on and as a lot of these offensive line calls become really common knowledge throughout the defensive lines in the NFL. It was funny yesterday watching Mahomes really start to control the game with his cadence. They were going a lot on two and you know, kind of throwing off Bosa a little bit because he was jumping it and really getting off the ball really fast early in the game. Were there guys you used to go against that you felt that cadence was a huge part of it just because when they knew it was coming, they got huge jumps where a game like this and the way it's played right now would be particularly effective? Yeah, so Kyle Williams from Buffalo Bills, he always sure. had you know 20-plus uh, offsides during the season because <laughs> he would get your snap count and he was willing to take the risk, right? Because if you think about it, a five-yard offsides penalty is not a huge deal. It's pretty much the biggest slap on the wrist penalty the NFL has. But when you talk about from an offensive standpoint, if he jumps the snap and gets a sack or a TFL, I mean, that's pretty much a drive killer. Yep. It's really hard to overcome a big TFL because you lose the down and the yardage, whereas an offsides is – you just move forward five yards, no big deal. Um, and so a lot of those better defensive linemen, they're willing to take that risk. And Kyle Williams was one of those guys where we just said basically, hey, if it's third down, we can't go on one this week. It's just not happening. <laughs> like he is going to be jumping on one, and you hope that two or three of those, he's going to go to the sideline and his coach is going to say, hey, Kyle, we know you're an all pro, but just take her easy once and just watch the ball this time. Like just try to do that for us. Um, but, but all the good ones do it. I mean, Von Miller does it. Um, Terrell Suggs does it like those are guys. They, they try to pick up on every little advantage that they possibly have 
to try to win the, win the snap count because that's the most important thing on, on a pass rush between the offense and defensive line is who gets off the ball quicker. Man, the Justin Smith and Kyle Williams, two names I did not know I'd be hearing today, really really bringing me back to like burly dudes in 2012 that I loved watching. I want to ask you, before we get into some specific guys that we've been watching this year, I want to talk to you about the Browns. I'm sure last week, going into that Thursday night game, you you couldn't have been feeling good. There had to be a sigh of relief watching them play the way they did on Thursday against the Bengals. I mean, we did the Thursday night football, the pregame and the postgame and the halftime, and we were talking all about it. Like, is this a must win? Well, obviously there's no must wins in week two, but if there ever was such a thing as a must win, <laughs> it had to look like that for the Browns, right? It was, it's not like if they lost, they're out of the playoffs, but it would be what a loss would tell us about this team. And totally now they don't great. have the expectations that they had last season where everyone was kind of myself included, picking them to win the division and maybe, you know, make a run in the playoffs. But I, I think the expectations are still kind of that nine and seven, eight and eight, maybe second place, compete somewhere down the line, maybe for a playoff spot. Um, and especially with Baker being this his third year, I, I was calling it his rubber match year because he played so good as a rookie. Everybody, myself included, said, "Hey, this is the franchise guy we've all been waiting for." He looked awesome. He set the rookie passing touchdown record. Year two was like a flip of the script. He just did not look the part. And so this is the year where I think he proves to everybody in the organization, like I'm either the guy from year one or I'm the guy from year two. And since the GM is not here anymore that drafted him, after year three, they're going to have to make a decision on his fifth-year option. And there's only so much time and there's only so much allowance you can give to your quarterback, even if you do like the guy, to prove himself that he can be that guy. And they've given him every weapon imaginable on offense. I mean, he's got the receivers. He's got the tight ends now. They even picked up two tackles because that was their big weakness last year. They they had a lot of struggles protecting for Baker at, at the tackle position. And now they've got Jack Conklin, one of the best right tackles in the game. And Jed Wills, they picked him in the first round. I think he's going to be one of the best tackles in the NFL and he's already playing really good football. So their offensive line is really good. I mean, at this point for Baker and that offense, there's no excuses why you shouldn't be a really good offense. And so playing a national televised game on a short week against a rookie quarterback who's only playing a second NFL game, including preseason that we didn't have, like that's a game you should win. Like you don't have any excuses if you're not able to win that game because all the cards are in your favor and especially the way they played in week one against the Ravens, they didn't look very good. You had to bounce back and prove that this season still is on track. We are a good team. And last week against the Ravens was just a blip on the radar. I, I totally agree. And I think that I wanted to see so much from Baker. And that was the one who really, I, he had a ton at stake. You know, we pick, we talk about it on the Thursday show every week, who has the most at stake this week. And I said it was Baker Mayfield because yeah. you needed to see it. Yeah, Even yeah. if it wasn't a must win, you needed to see some glimpses. And that touchdown he threw to Beckham, that's the exact type of stuff I wanted them to do is get him on the move, you know, really kind of put him in structure and not allow him to kind of sit in the pocket and get in his own head a little bit too much. And it was so perfect to see. When you talk about Wills, what have you seen from him that you like so far? I loved him coming out. I think he's a smart guy, just unbelievably explosive. I was excited to watch him. What have you seen from him so far that makes you that encourages you? Yeah, Wills is my favorite offensive lineman coming out of the draft. Um Mackay Becton was my second favorite. And I thought those guys are both going to be great pros. Um, but the thing I like the most about Jed is his technique, his suddenness, his ability to recover and change of direction 
when he does get beat, which is so important, especially early on in your career. Your technique's not going to be perfect, although he does have good technique, but you're going to get in bad positions. There's a lot of great pass rushers in the NFL, and they're going to give you the okey-doke, and you're going to overset sometimes, and you're going to get out of balance. But if you're a great athlete that can keep your balance and change direction and get back into phase. We talk about phases being with a cornerback and a receiver, like being mm-hmm. in phase for a cornerback is the right position you want to be in. If you're out of phase, the guy's beating you essentially. So it's the same thing as an offensive tackle. If I'm between my man and the quarterback, I'm in phase. As soon as he is off and I'm as, as soon as he's off my body and I'm not on that line between my man and the quarterback anymore, I'm out of phase, I'm out of position. So you got to be able to recover. The great ones have that ability to recover. And that's what I saw from him in college. And that's what I've seen from Jed already so far. He's exceeded my expectations and there's never been a harder position for a rookie offensive line than to be in as it is this season without preseason and with hardly any uh, any training camp to get ready for the season. And he's, I think, has done a really good job. He's transitioned from right tackle to left tackle. And he's starting to look like a guy that you say, hey, he looks like he's played left tackle his whole life. He's looking like <laughs> that veteran starter that you want. And that's really impressive going into week three of the season. I went back and watched the Bengals game this morning. And the run game is just fun as hell right now. They're doing so many different things. And I was, I, I watched that game. I was like, holy shit, Wyatt Teller. Like, yeah. They are, they are, it's, they're using him. For the people who don't know, he's the right guard. He started the second half of last season. If you didn't watch a lot of second half of 2019 Browns football, we can forgive you for that. <laughs> they are legitimately using him as like a weapon in the run game. He's just moving people when they're running to the right, and he's pulling and just launching dudes when they're running to the left. I mean, they are legitimately like focusing the run game around him. You just don't see that very often from a single guard like they're doing right now. That's the fun thing that I, I've noticed with Kevin Stefanski's offense in Cleveland already here in week two is we knew he was going to be a wide zone guy, kind of like Kyle Shanahan, yep. right? They were going to kind of feature the outside zone, and they have done that, but He's not been afraid to throw in a lot of guard pull, the center pull, the tackle pull, trap type plays, sort of the more traditional power football plays that a lot of other teams run. But it's not exactly a feature in the West Coast or the wide zone scheme. Um, But knowing the type of players that the Browns have, Joel Batonio, Wyatt Teller, they've got really good guards that are physical. And so why not pull them? Why not let them run around there and smash somebody in the mouth, do a little Quentin Nelson impression? I mean, they're – doing a great job running a lot of these pull schemes, these outside uh, down, down, pull around, kick out type plays. And you can tell Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt, they like running those plays too. They've had a lot of success. So it'll be interesting to see how much they feature of the the pulling type plays on offense versus the traditional wide zone stuff. Bo Callahan's doing a lot of the run game design there. and He's the offensive line coach. I think he's a fantastic hire if you're trying to build a staff. When you're going into a week as an offensive lineman and you know that your run game is going to be varied, that you're going to have plays where you get angles, do you just kind of approach the game differently? Is it more exciting when you have that sort of diverse attack on the ground? Well, you get really excited when they're installing the run game and they talk about, hey, when we get into this personnel grouping and this formation and we make this shift, this linebacker, it's a hundred percenter. He has not adjusted to the right gap. So if we do our job up front, we get the double team block between the guard and the tackle, and we're able to get our hat on the right angle, there's going to be a huge gap. And if running back, if you trust it, just trust it for seven steps. When you get to your seventh step, 
Put your outside foot in the ground and cut upfield. Don't cut back. Cut upfield, and there's going to be a gash in there that you could drive a truck through. There's going to be a gurney hole right there where you can <laughs> you can put eight semi trucks through, and you get excited about that stuff as an offensive yeah. lineman. You go, yeah, that is there, and right all of a sudden you get a <laughs> call right. in the first fifteen. He's right, and you you, you hit a gasher, uh, and it's like. And he was right. And then all of a sudden, you know, you go back to that. And then pretty soon you see him on the sideline, on the other sideline. They're scratching their heads. They're drawn on the whiteboard. They're trying to fix it. But what a great coach like Bill Callahan does, he's got that changeup, right? He goes, you know, as soon as they over-adjust and they try to cover up this little problem that they've got going on right here, well, hey, now we're going to hit him with the counter move. It's going to look exactly the same. And this is what's great about this offense. Like, they've got a lot of plays that look exactly the same. So you're going to mm-hmm. say, all right, we're going to start exactly the same, but we're going to run the windback play. So the quarterback's going to open to the same side. The running back's going to take his first step. But then all of a sudden, we're going to pull the, the backside tight end, and he's going to run around, and we're going to collapse the backside, and we're going to get this running back where he's going to take one step, and he's going to change field. And then all of a sudden, now you hit him with the counter play. And that's what makes the offense so dangerous because as soon as you hit them a couple times with the standard play and then you hit them with the counter, their heads are spinning and they don't know what to do. And, and then you got them on their heels and you got them right where you want them. All right, let's talk about some of the younger tackles in the league that you've enjoyed watching recently. I want to start with Orlando Brown from the Ravens, who I, I went back and watched this morning. Just a huge, huge man, which definitely kind of plays into his style and everything else. When you watch him play, what jumps out to you about him? Well, obviously, the first thing that jumps out to you is his size, right? You know, he's like the granite mountain of a man out there, just like his father was, who played for Baltimore and played for the Browns. Uh, Big Zeus, they used to call him. (laughs) But um, he's a big man, too, but he's a good athlete. Like, he's got really good feet. And for being a young player, he's got really good technique. You know, there's plenty of big guys that are out there, and there's even plenty of big guys that are good athletes. But you've got to put the technique with the athleticism to be effective. And he really has done a great job of that. Like, he doesn't get himself out of position very much. He's really in good balance a lot of times. And that's the one thing you look for with big guys is, like, if they get out of balance because of how big they are, and a lot of times they're top-heavy, they have a hard time getting back in balance. And so a lot of times you give them a counter move, you give them a club or a swim or something like that, you get them to overset, they can't recover. But – Orlando, he does a really nice job of not oversetting. He's very patient in his set. And if he does get beat, he's got pretty good balance where he can recover. Um, so he's been really impressive, and he's been a young guy that's fun to watch. I was watching – he did the film session with Brian Baldinger that they do on NFL Game Pass, and he was discussing a play against the Browns, actually, where he knew that Miles Garrett was going inside because he could feel the nickel coming off the right side. And when you have that sort of play recognition, one, as a young player, but two, when you have his length, you don't need many advantages to put yourself in the right position. So if you can pick up on little things like that to be able to use the arms that he has, I mean, you can just swallow guys pretty quickly when you know where they're going. So you combine the athleticism, the size, and just clearly he has a certain level of awareness. And that's when you just have a guy who really gets it even at a young age. Yeah, that's the game within the game that usually takes guys three or four years to master because, yeah, I want to study my guy and I want to know what he's doing. But a lot of times what he's doing is going to be told to me by what the safety does and what the linebackers on his side or the cornerback does. And so when you're watching film, you start picking up on that stuff. And then pretty soon, like you said, you can come to the line of scrimmage and you can say, okay, I know he's going to come inside because the safety's down and the linebacker's creeping out a little bit wider and a little bit tighter than he usually is. 
And so I don't have to take my full kick. I don't have to take my full kick and get out of position. I can just take my set in place and get ready to accept that defensive end who's spiking to the inside. And now I look like I'm this great fast athlete when really I just knew what he was going to do before he did. Right? That's how old guys in the NFL survive. I mean, I, I survived into my 11th year and I was much slower and more banged up and crippled in my 11th season than I was in my first year. But I probably played faster because I was seeing things that were happening before they happened on the field. Another guy that you, you wanted to talk about, jo- uh, Jawan Taylor from Jacksonville, who has your offensive line coach that you had in Cleveland for yep. a few years, George yep. Wahop, which I assume is why you started watching him. I'm sure you talked to him, and, and though he tells you, yeah, you should definitely watch this guy. So he's in his second year. He was a guy that fell in the draft because of injury concerns, but was generally considered a potential top 10 pick. They got him in the second round. What do you like about his game? What stood out to you kind of early in this season? Well, first of all, you're exactly right. George Warhop is one of the great offensive line coaches in the NFL. He's up there with uh, Bill Callahan, and he does a great job developing guys. So Juwan is in fantastic hands. He's also got my old strength coach down there in Jacksonville, Tom Myslinski, who's fantastic at developing strength and mass in young players. So this kid's in, in fantastic hands. Um, but what I really like about when I'm watching him is he's very powerful. He's got good technique. He's patient. He's learning the system very quickly, but he's also very powerful. Um, and for a big guy, like run blocking is important, but you make your money in the NFL being powerful against big and strong rushers. And he does a really good job of anchoring when he does get bull rushed. And when he does get guys that counter move, he's quick enough to keep up with them, but then he's quick enough to stop them in their tracks. And so I'm doing the Thursday night game this week, uh, Jacksonville versus the Dolphins. I'm excited to watch him. You know, I know my uh, my boneheads, Mike Irvin and Steve Smith, won't be watching any offensive line play, <laughs> but I can't wait to watch the battle in the trenches because this is one of those young guys that I think is really taking the league by storm. You, a lot of the better offensive tackles in the league, I think, are kind of defined by patience, especially right time. Think about the way that Mitchell Schwartz plays and just kind of how in control. And that, well, that's why watching a guy like Juwan is kind of striking just because of how aggressive he is with his hands. I mean, he's really trying to like stun people. And you just don't see that many guys who are high level offensive linemen kind of play with that level of aggressiveness all the time. So it was fun watching him this morning. I was like, oh, man, he's really getting after people, which I enjoy watching. And like you said, the strength is important, the physicality. And another guy that you know came in the league great feet really good athlete but I think there were questions about his strength was Brian O'Neill with the Vikings kind of smaller he was a former tight end but I was watching him this morning it looks like he's gotten a lot stronger I mean he was holding up against Zadarius Smith in bull rushes and just really anchoring down how, how have you seen his game kind of change over the last couple of years yeah Brian's a very good athlete uh, he came into the NFL as a guy that they said, you know, great athlete. You have a, some question marks about his anchor. Is he going to be strong and powerful enough? Um, but a lot of times that question is just as much about your technique and your ability to get into powerful positions, hip mobility, ankle mobility, your ability to flex your knees and get low. Like that creates power just like mass and size and strength create power. Um, but I, I think he's done a great job embracing the technique that it takes, but he's also benefited. He's in the system that the Browns are in that the 49ers run. It's that wide zone, Gary Kubiak, Kyle Shanahan, back to Mike Shanahan system. And I think that really benefits uh, an athletic smaller type guy like Brian, because you're able to use your athleticism against the defense because you're constantly moving. You're constantly trying to shock the defensive line with your speed and you do run a lot of play action passes. And so a lot of times those defensive linemen are used to running side to side 
and all of a sudden it's third and four and you run at them and it looks like a play action run uh, or a run action pass like we would call it and the defensive lineman takes two seconds before he can even get into his pass rush and so you're kind of using your feet and your quickness and athleticism to get on a guy before he even realizes that it is a pass and so those systems kind of minimizes the number of true drop back passes that you have I played in uh, North Turner's system, which was like a nightmare. <laughs> it's the exact opposite. <laughs> it was totally the opposite. Yeah. We, we honestly led the NFL, and I think we averaged like 69% of the time drop back pass or something insane. And, it's, and vertical which, passes too. Vertical. So like slow developing, yeah. Exactly. It was oh, uh, Don Coriel, like everybody <laughs> go vertical, just run deep and cross and far and wide. Uh, and so for 60 plays, it's felt like every week you were just pass setting vertically and absorbing bull rushes. And so it was really tough. Uh, it made me a much better offensive tackle because I did it. I pass blocked so much. Um, but when you're in that wide zone scheme, and especially when the games are close, you maybe only have 10 dropbacks versus the average might be 25. Uh, when, Like I mentioned, when I had Norv, we were dropping back. 45 times straight back in the pocket. So um, I think that has helped him, especially early on when you're still trying to develop your technique and your strength in the true drop back vertical passing game. Um, but I, I think he's done a great job and, and he's one of those young guys that's going to be fun to watch. When I was watching them play the Packers and watching him play against Darius Smith, I was thinking about this and wanted to ask you, if you could choose to go against the guy that was really powerful, like as Darius Smith or an Everson Griffin, somebody who plays with that sort of style, or going against a guy like, let's say, Cam Wake, who just is all you know, sprinter off the ball, who would you rather play against for 70 plays? Me personally, I always preferred the athletic fast guy because I was more of the fast athletic tackle sure. than I was like the big guy. Like I think back to the tackles of the 90s, the great Hall of Fame guys, Orlando Pace, Walter Jones, Jonathan Ogden, Willie Rofe. I mean, those dudes, the lightest one was probably 340. And, uh, you know, uh, Jonathan Ogden was like 365. So these were massive human beings, and they were unbelievably athletic as well. But if you tried to bull rush him, I don't care who you are. You weren't getting through him, right? Um, the 2000s, my generation, a lot more guys are in the 305 to 310, more athletic, less of like the big, strong, physical type offensive tackles. And so for me, the matchup was always a little bit better with the athletic guys. But I would say if you're only a strong guy where you're sort of just like the bull rush type, there are things to do to take that away. Like you can be aggressive in your sets. You can jump set. You can short set. And you can kind of get on them before they get started. The hard guys are the guys that are great bull rushers, as you'd expect, but also have some quickness and wiggle, like a Terrell Suggs, like like those guys, Von Millers, you know, the guys Khalil that Mack. Khalil Max, who have that power, but also have that quickness. Those are the guys that gave me nightmares. Those were the ones where I didn't sleep the week going up to that game. Joe, one of the guys I know you wanted to talk about was David Bakhtiari, who's you know, one of the best left tackles, if not the best pass blocking left tackle in the entire league. Are there aspects to his game when you watch him that you think, oh man, even I had trouble doing that during my career. Things that you're not necessarily jealous of that you look at him and just think are truly exceptional. Yeah. So David's the best pass blocking uh, tackle in the NFL, in my opinion. He's been like that for a couple of years. Um, and the thing that I love watching with him is, the quickness with which he moves his feet. I, I, I was a good athlete, but my feet never moved quickly. 
Like when you watch my sets, they were very plotting and methodical. And <laughs> I felt like I needed that to keep my balance, to make sure that everything was very precise. But David's like the opposite. His feet look like a rabbit when you're watching him. You can barely see those things, how quickly they're moving. His set is so smooth and fast that it is really fun as an offensive lineman nerd to watch. So, and then the other guy, and I, mean, I think you could probably make a case that he's the best left tackle in the league right now. I love watching him play. I mean, he, again, he's so smooth. Like you said, he was another guy, you know, David and I have talked about this. When he came into the league, he was on the lighter side. His athleticism was never in question. He needed to get stronger and he put on that weight. And now his ability to anchor against pretty much anybody, you know, you watch him, he can just shut guys down. It's incredible to watch. And on the other side, you know, you could probably make an argument that Ryan Ramchek is the best right tackle in the NFL right now, along with a couple other guys. I know that you're probably a little bit biased with the Wisconsin thing, but <laughs> when you watch yes. Ryan play, what jumps out to you about his game? I've never been ashamed to admit my bias for Browns and Badgers. <laughs> so clearly I'm, I'm biased. Uh, I, I think Ryan's fantastic. Yeah, he's, you know, it's, it's always hard for me when people ask me, hey, who's the best offensive tackle in the NFL or who's the best left tackle? Because – to me, the position of offensive line is not about how many great plays you make. It's how few errors you make because that's really yeah. how you're measured. Like, your team is counting on you to just do your job. Like, you don't have to do any more. Like, if you pancake your guy and they throw a touchdown pass or you just block your guy and they throw a touchdown pass, it still counts as six points. Like, it, it may get the announcers excited. It may get the people at home. It may be get your buddies in the film room excited when you smash somebody's face and, and you break their face mask. But it doesn't count for anything more. And so really what makes <laughs> greatness on the offensive line is a lack of mistakes. So you'd have to watch literally every play for every player the entire year to kind of be able to sort through the top five guys who are clearly head and shoulders above everybody else. With that being said, Ramchek is really fun because he is that type of athlete that can keep up with anybody, but he also has a lot of power and strength not only in pass pro, like to anchor and at the point of attack when he makes that contact, but when you get him in the run game, like he can move some bodies. He is super strong and flexible, so he can get up and underneath his guys and he can push them off the line of scrimmage. He really is the total package as a right tackle, and I can't wait to see the contract that the Saints have to dole out to him <laughs> next year because it's going to be massive. With the 17 cents in cap space, they're going to pay him $20 yeah, exactly. million dollars a year. Unfortunately, they're going to have to cut the rest of their offensive line and Drew Brees. <laughs> <laughs> but it'll be worth it. Joe, we could do this with 100 different guys. I, I would if I had the time or if I would think that people would continue to listen. But unfortunately, <laughs> that's all we got. I cannot tell you how fun this is for me and how exciting it was. I sincerely appreciate the time. So uh, best of luck with the Thursday night game this week. Best of luck with the rest of the season. And sincerely, thank you for doing this. Yeah, man, I, I appreciate you having me on. I love talking offensive line play to the five people that are still listening after 45 <laughs> minutes of O-line talk. Thank you very much for your service to God and country and fat men everywhere. God bless. It, it means a lot to us. Last week is in the books. Now it's time to review the tape and prepare for this week. There's no better way to get in on all the action than with DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports. To add to this week's excitement, DraftKings has a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes up for grabs. If you haven't tried DraftKings yet, head to the App Store now because you don't want to miss this. Draft your lineup and feel the sweat like never before. Every run, pass, and catch means more with DraftKings. It's simple. Just pick your lineup, stand to the salary cap, and see how your team stacks up against the competition. Nothing adds to the excitement of watching the game quite like having a shot at millions of dollars in prizes. 
DraftKings has paid out billions of dollars to winners since 2012, so they know a thing or two about cold hard cash. Download the DraftKings app now and use code MAZE, that's my last name, for a limited time, new users can get a free shot at millions of dollars in prizes this week. Don't miss out on the week three action. Enter code MAZE to get a free shot at millions of dollars in prizes with your first deposit. That's code MAZE, M-A-Y-S, only at DraftKings. Make it rain. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, it's time for this week's team visit. And there was really no other direction that I could go with this except to go to the Womp Womp Eagles, who are 0-2. And there is just nothing better to me in the football world than a sad Eagles team because it's almost like the natural resting state for Eagles fans is to be fatalistic and mad. So when the Eagles are bad, it just feels like they get to kind of come right back into their comfort zone. And I wanted to bring on my good buddies, Bo Wolf and Zach Berman, both of whom do an excellent job covering the Eagles for the Athletic. Zach, you've covered this team for a long time. I'm sure this feels like familiar territory to you. Just people screaming at you all the time, just really mad about the state of the world. It's got to feel like you're back in your natural habitat here. <laughs> well, certainly uh, back to like the Chip Kelly era and then the end <laughs> of the Andy Reid era. The the fans have, have been relatively spoiled here for the past you know two or so years, but uh it does, it, it, you know, when when talk radio is complaining about the coach and the quarterback, there is like order restored sometimes. I can't believe Zach was able to get a Chip Kelly reference in that quickly. That <laughs> slayed the over-under. So fast. Bo, what's been your favorite thing that somebody's complained to you about so far this season? Has it been one that stuck out? Well, I, I think the funniest thing to me is is uh, Doug Peterson the other day complaining about the lack of an off season, which is so self evidently <laughs> evidently ridiculous because you know this team has more continuity than almost anybody else in the league, and you know they just you know they got they got smoked by a, or blew a game to a Washington team that had a brand new coaching staff, you know a, a Rams team that had new pieces, a new defensive coordinator. So uh, I thought that was very funny, but uh, I would say the the one thing that is different about this year is uh, you don't get the booze. We're missing the booze. Like, oh, it's so true. I didn't think about that. Like week one, after they won the Super Bowl at halftime, they're getting booed because they had a bad first <laughs> half. So like that they put out that stinker against the Rams and didn't get like the booze that they d- definitely deserved. That was, I think, what was what was missing. So the Eagles are 0-2, but it's an ugly 0-2. I mean, I think there are a couple teams around the league where you can kind of talk yourselves into, ah, they look good in stretches, yada, yada. But you lose to a Washington team, like you said, that has a ton of moving pieces that a lot of people predicted to probably be in contention for the number one pick this year. And they were just complete... They, they and yeah, that's it's, it's there's still plenty of time there, yeah. but they were just outplayed and out coached. And we talked about that on the show I did with Nate after week one. I mean, that Washington defense was just in all the right spots. It just looked like they were more prepared or extremely prepared for whatever the Eagles wanted to do offensively. And then last week, they were just outclassed by that Rams team. I mean, at no point during that game. 
did it feel like the Rams were not in complete control. So it's not as if this team has you know, gotten a couple bad breaks. They had bad losses each of the first two weeks. So, Zach, if you were kind of doing an Eagles panic power rankings here, where people are going from the thing they're most worried about to the thing they're least worried about, where would you start? I would start with, with Carson Wentz, and, and, and is. that is the clear number one. And the reason is, first off, the investment that the organization has in him, the fact that it's year five here, and there has never been this type of scrutiny on him. The, he It's his first time throwing back-to-back multi-interception games, and there have been bad stretches or bad games before, but... They've often been easier to rationalize. What you're seeing now is it's much harder to rationalize. There's there's little reason why Carson should be making the mistakes he's making other than him regressing. And, and, and when your franchise quarterback is regressing in year five, uh, that is a major concern. So that would be one end of the spectrum. And when they're 0-2 and, and, and not playing well, it's hard to find one on the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> I, I suppose I could say running backs because Miles Sanders – was back in the lineup and looked decently. Yeah, he 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 had a bad fumble to begin the game, but otherwise, I think there's optimism that they'll be able to run the ball with Miles Sanders. Uh, but really, across the board here, there aren't many reasons to look at this team through two weeks and and and, and say they have that figured out. So I was looking at some of the numbers today. Now, when I kind of started digging into them, I assumed, oh yeah, Wentz has been bad. I'm sure he's down near the bottom of the league. And then you start to look at it. Not only is he dead last in passing EPA, he is dead last by so far yeah. that he has three times the negative passing DVOA that Sam Darnold does. He has been the worst quarterback in the NFL statistically by the widest margin you could possibly conceive. It is absolutely shocking. And I think there are a lot of issues happening right now. But, Bo, if you're trying to characterize just where a lot of the concern is rooted when it comes to the way that Carson Wentz is playing, how would you characterize it? Well, I think that I think that the number one problem right now is the turnovers. And, uh, you know, we sort of know who Carson Wentz wants to be as a player, right? Uh, he is never going to be a guy who makes all the layups, right? He, he's going to have some bouts of... Uh, you know, being inaccurate. That's that's a thing that we know about him through the first five years. But he has done a very good job at avoiding interceptions throughout his career. I think it's like 1.8% interception rate throughout his career. This year, it's up to 4.7. So that's, I mean, that's probably not going to stay that high. That will progress to the mean. But there was reason to believe that he was going to throw uh, more interceptions this year. I think Ed Fang wrote, wrote about that in the offseason. Um, but he just, he doesn't look... Uh, he hasn't made the kind of jump you would expect. And it is a little bit exhausting uh, to be in year five and every game is still sort of a referendum on Carson Wentz's career. Um, but I think like if you if you take a step back, there's reason to to expect that he's going to get better over the course of the season. Like this is probably the worst two game stretch of his career. There's no reason to expect that, that that's going to uh, go out for the entire season. Like he's probably going to bounce back. But uh, he's always going to, you know, take sacks. Uh, he has a fumbling issue. He's going to miss some throws, but he also is usually able to balance that out by making the big plays down the field, you know, those wow plays that, that other quarterbacks can't make. And when he's tried to do those through these first two games, you know, a tiny sample, it hasn't worked out. He's thrown some interceptions. And I think you sort of see like uh, some of the things that make him special sort of, you know, beaten out of him, especially in this game against the Rams. Like there was a, a play 
in the game, third and eight, uh, right before the kick of field goal at like 24-16. And he moves up in the pocket, and he has Ertz there, but he just throws the ball away. And it sort of seems like an overcorrection to taking eight sacks the week before. Uh, and overcorrecting is sort of a thing that I think Zach and I have talked about is sort of endemic to this organization. They, they tend to do that a lot. But uh, it seems like that was what happened in week two. It's so interesting that you say that because on their first drive, when they eventually kicked a field goal, he had that little tiny flip to Miles Sanders for like two yards short of the sticks. And he got out of the pocket and got rid of that ball so quickly. And when I'm watching him play right now, it just feels like he's not settled at all. He's either playing way too fast where he's diving out of pockets that are actually pretty comfortable or he's, I mean, there was that one terrible screen. I think he threw it to Sean Jackson's feet or maybe it was Jalen Rigger. He's way too sped up or he's playing way too slow. If you look at some of the numbers, more than half of his dropbacks have lasted longer than two and a half seconds this year. It's about 54% of plays and he's completing 45% of his passes on those plays. The only guys that are worse in the league right now are Matthew Stafford, Dwayne Haskins and Sam Darnold, which not a good list, guys. Stafford's fine. But that the company you want to keep are not those other two guys. Zach, can you explain at all why he doesn't look very comfortable? We're, say, we're talking about year five. We talked about continuity. There are a couple moving pieces on this offense. But for the most part, you would think that the ancillary elements of the organization and Carson Wentz would allow him to kind of hit the ground running. But it looks like he's supremely uncomfortable playing in this offense right now. Yeah, I, I think you need to separate the... The holding on from the ball, or 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 the holding on to the ball too long, to maybe any mechanical issues or or fundamental issues that are are leading to the inaccurate passes or the inconsistencies. I I do think when you have Carson Wentz as your quarterback, you accept the fact that it's it's not going to be out of his hands quickly. He's he's not going to be one of those point guard type quarterbacks. He he does hold on to the ball. He does try to extend plays uh, sometimes to a detriment. Other times. In a way that that he he kind of dazzles, you know. If you think back to that 2017 season, and and, and frankly, the statute of limitations on on that year might be expiring by now. But <laughs> but but that's really that's that's the level that the Eagles expect Carson to play at. You know that MVP level, and he he had plays that season uh, when he was dynamic when when he was when he was holding onto the ball and making plays that were off script. So he can do that. So I, I think with him holding on to the ball, that's not as much a concern as, like Bo said, the turnovers, which have just been bad decisions, bad passes and bad decisions. Whether he's he's missing the throw, whether the timing is off, um, you, you you look at the critical interception that he had against the Rams. And, and so that one is... Uh, it's the Eagles are are driving. They're on the 21 yard line. They have a chance to, to take the lead. They have momentum in their direction. It's a first and ten, and he throws an interception in the end zone to JJ Ortega Whiteside that that Doug Peterson flat out said was an unacceptable play. Uh, you can make the argument that that the read would be okay if Carson threw the ball differently. If 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 he threw it sooner or if he threw it to the back of the end zone, but the way he threw it was a poor decision. And and, and then you see passes, um, like you mentioned, the the uh, the the pass that he missed to Deshaun, where just mechanically it's 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 not what you're expecting to see in, in, in terms of the consistency you would expect from Carson Wentz. So I think you need to separate those two things, but I, I really don't think there's an easy answer for this. And I, I, I think that's that's part of what is flummoxing the Eagles right now 
is is that there is this expectation with Carson Wentz that you'll get a baseline of consistency, and he's well beyond he's he, he's he's well below that baseline right now. And I I don't know if there's an easy answer other than crossing your fingers and and hoping you're getting the quarterback you paid. The problem with that interceptions is it's a compounded issue, right? Not only is it a bad decision in terms of him going to that route, probably, but the ball placement is also bad. Mm-hmm. If he, like you said, if he puts that ball, if he tries to hit the upright with that ball, essentially, and that's it's fine because he's put in where only his guy can get it and it's okay. I can understand that ball placement because you don't want to throw it into the other safety as it's coming across, right. kind of under threw it a little bit. But if you're going to throw it where you don't want it to get it picked off, just throw it above the guy's head. You have your tallest receiver whose number one quality is being bigger than people. Mm-hmm. And Theoretically, that's the issue. Yeah. That's what it should be. And that's kind of the issue. And even that the slant he threw to Arthega Whiteside in that game that got tipped that was a little bit behind him early in the game, it's the same sort of issue. Hey, he probably shouldn't have thrown that ball at all, but where he put it just doesn't make sense. It just seems like he's so out of sorts. And I think you could probably extend that problem to the rest of the Eagles offense. But when I watched them in week one and they're just insistence on pushing the ball down the field, even though their offensive line was banged up and they're playing against a team that's fantastic up front. And then I watched them play last week. Not only does Wentz look unsettled, it just looks like they don't know what they want to be. Can you try to just distill for me or articulate what the vision is for this offense? Because one of the issues coming into the season that Sheila and I talked about actually in our preview was, are there going to be too many cooks in the in the kitchen now when you have Scangarello and you have Press Taylor there? There's so many guys that that was a benefit of this team when they were going to the Super Bowl. People talked about how that collaboration was a good thing. Now it seems like they're it's just muddled. It's it's a very convoluted understanding of who they want to be. So if you were trying to articulate this is what the Eagles want to be offensively, what would you say? Well, it's such a good question because they were so different from week one to week two. Yeah, um, exactly. And, and and as you said, and the the big emphasis this offseason, if you talk to uh, Carson Wentz and Press Taylor and Doug Peterson, was they needed to get more explosive on offense. And that was Obvious for everybody to see who has watched this team over the past couple of years, everything has been so difficult for them on offense. They have to ha- sustain these long drives. Uh, you know, nobody is really open. It's it's this like grinding bog offense that is tough to watch and tough to sustain. So instead of bringing in, uh, you know, veteran wide receivers to help on the outside, they draft Jalen Rager in the first round. And that's about it. And just cross their fingers that Deshaun's going to stay healthy. But the Goodwin opt out too, who I think was probably part of that. Yeah, but Goodwin is, I mean, he was acquired for a fifth round pick swap. Like it's a, he's a, he's a dart that you're throwing along with John Hightower and and Quez Watkins. And I think the the goal with him was to just to be able to spell Deshaun Jackson. But uh, so week one, they come out and it's bombs away. And that first (laughs) half, it looks good. I mean, uh, the 55 yarder to Jalen Rager, they almost hit on two more at the end of the half. Uh, It was. Carson Wentz's highest uh, average depth of target over the past three seasons. I almost tweeted, it's so nice to see Carson Wentz going deep again because he throws a pretty nice deep ball. I'm so glad that receipt does not exist because it would not have aged well at all. But it was, you know what? It was, it wasn't that bad. Like all they needed to do was have Carson Wentz not take as many bad sacks. Like there was a, there was a middle ground there that they could have struck. And instead of just tweaking things a little bit, they completely retreated in week two to the same offense we've seen the last two seasons. They were in 12 personnel 80% of the time 
against the Rams. I mean, <laughs> over on the, on the course of the season, they're at sixty eight percent. Number two in the league is at thirty one percent. They're more didn't than you, double number two. It's ridiculous. Did you tweet that it was performance art? Is that what yes, you refer to is. it as? It's right? like, yeah. you know, they're building. They're trying to build the whole plane out of out of twelve personnel. It's ridiculous. Um, and you know, it's true that like having Goddard and Ertz on the field at the same time probably gives them you know a better group of pass receivers. Zach and I have talked about this, but. Like it's 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 just as much an indictment of the team building as it is of the coaching staff. But uh, then week two, you know, it's it's like back to almost half the average depth of target, six and a half. It was exactly the same offense we've seen over the past couple of years, and everything is too difficult to sustain. So I think you're right; they don't know who they are. It was like they dipped their toe into the water week one of trying to have a little bit of a downfield offense, and then week two they decided, okay, you know, we tried it, we can't do it now. You know, you do have to say that the Rams were playing much more, you know, two deep safeties. Uh, so it, w- it would have been difficult to, to push the ball down the field. But, like, there are no guys on this team who are getting consistent separation in, in that 12 personnel except for Deshaun Jackson. It's like, I, I think you're right. I, I don't think they know who they are, who they want to be. And if Wentz was the only issue right now, I think we're having a different sort of conversation and the tone of this is much different. But the offensive line is a mess. Salamalu went on IR. He's going to be gone at least three weeks. You're gone three of your week one starters. It feel like, you know, you have Jason Peters. You can put him out at left tackle. Lane Johnson comes back. You know, maybe you can figure out the interior with Brooks gone. But now just the blows keep on coming. And you would say in a typical situation if guys were healthy, oh, they'll figure it out. You know, they're on one end of the spectrum, then they're on the other. We'll meet somewhere in the middle. Progress will be made. But the offensive line concerns give you pause about that. And then you look to the other side of the ball. And the defense is all over the place. And I know that the back end and the back seven is something they needed to figure out tons of moving pieces. And that looks like a group that has not figured it out. Zach, what's kind of the company line right now about where the defense stands and where they want it to go? Because it seems like that is a group in flux and very far away from kind of getting where they're trying to get. So we spoke to to Jim Schwartz today and, and the company line for the performance against the Rams was was Jim taking responsibility. Jim saying that he had a bad game plan. He said it was it was it was too simple and it, and it was on him and the the point he tried to make was that they had experienced players making uncharacteristic errors there, mistakes there and that goes back to the defensive coordinator. And Jim's experienced enough that that he knows how to fall on the sword. Uh, but I, I think the problems go beyond Jim. And and the reason I say that is because there are personnel issues here that were apparent going into the season. Really what what the Eagles did, and, 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 and they made dramatic changes. I, I don't think that's overstating it, to their lineup uh, from what they've had in the past. Really they thought that if, if they had a number one cornerback, which they have now in, in Darius Slay, and they haven't had that in the past, and they have a... a a really strong defensive line, which they hope they have with three of the top 10 paid for three defensive tackles in the league. And then they have some good players on the, on the edge. Brandon Graham's a good player. They're expecting Derek Barnett to be a good player. So they have, it, you're not going to throw in Josh sweat Zach and, and, and Josh sweat might be their best defensive end right now. Yeah. So, so right there you have six defensive linemen that you believe you can hang your hat on. Uh, but, but like you said, the back seven had questions going into this year, and they haven't done anything really to answer those questions. And, and and so I think that in some cases with this defense, they're not getting what they're paying for. On the defensive line, for instance, they didn't get enough pressure on Jared Goff. Um, going forward this this week against Cincinnati, 
if 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 Joe Burrow's jersey's not dirty at the end of the game, then that's a major problem because this is an offensive line that they should be able to beat. Uh, but at some positions, frankly, they're getting exactly what they're paying for. Their their linebacker core. This is how I would put Oof. it: their long snappers being paid more than any of their linebackers. <laughs> um, and 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 that goes to show you. Uh, how the organization values that position. They haven't allocated a pick higher than than a third-round pick at that position since 2012. Uh, they let basically all their players that aren't on rookie contracts leave. It's, it's a group that they'll tell you they're trusting their scouting and their development, but frankly, there hasn't been any evidence that their scouting and their development is apt enough in that area or good enough in that area uh, to be sufficient. And I think going forward, linebacker could be more of an issue. And, 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 and frankly, same thing at, at, at safety. They let Malcolm Jenkins go and they replace him with Jalen Mills or they're moving over from cornerback. And that's fine if, if he's complimented by, uh, you know, a high paid safety, but, but, but Rodney McLeod was the less expensive of their two veteran options. So I, I think at that position, frankly, they're getting what they're paying for as well. To me, I think this is this is a team building issue because uh, the last two seasons, even though go back to the Super Bowl, you know they had mediocre at best cornerback play, right? And they still won a Super Bowl and made the playoffs in back to back years. And they went out this offseason, and the big move they made, uh, or the big two moves, if you count the, the Javon Hargrave signing, was trading for Darius Slay. You know, trading a three and a five and giving him a new contract. And Darius Slay's been great through the first two games. He's been exactly what they paid for. And the defense still stinks. And, <laughs> and so, like, what was the point if and, – and, and Howie Roseman has talked about this. Like, if you have two options, one is trade for Darius Slay and one is basically beat the Cardinals package for DeAndre Hopkins. Like, you could have done that or you could have addressed the offense, and you know, which we know is more important, and tried to get by with, you know, fine cornerback play again. And they didn't do that. And it doesn't seem to me like that was, you know, the right course of action. It's it's uh, it's a roster building thing. And and t- to Zach's point, like you know, the linebackers are bad, and then the guy they took in the third round, who's a linebacker, is basically a redshirt player because mm-hmm. he's not uh, experienced enough to get on the field. You guys talking about the overcorrection, I think, is a really good point. And the Slay trade speaks to that. You know, they're like, we need a number one corner. We're going to throw the resources to get that, and they do it. And when you skimp on linebacker, and then even the corner on the other side, when you watch that game against the Rams. Sean McVay had his sights set on Nate Gary that entire game. He put him in a blender for 60 minutes. And when you have smart, really good offensive coaches in this league that can say, here are your two weak links. I'm going to hammer them over and over and over again. They're going to take the free money. And that's exactly what McVay did that entire first half. Every pass they completed to the right side of the field was like a five-yard out. Every pass they completed to the right side, left side of the field or over the middle was a 20-yard gain. That's not an accident. He knows exactly what he's doing. The Nate Gary thing is so funny to Eagles fans because he, I, I have never covered a player with a greater disparity of, uh, between the way he's talked about publicly <laughs> and the way that people like view him and see him on the field. People talk about Nate Gary in the building the Ken Flagell, the linebackers coach, has called him the smartest linebacker he's ever coached. He could coach the position. Like, uh, that is not what anybody's seen on the field. Tell us what we're missing. Yeah, there are so many linebackers like that where they're just glowing <laughs> reviews from the coaching staff. Then you watch them play, and guys like Shanahan and McVay are like just smashing the button over and over <laughs> again. All right, before you guys get out of here, I just want to know on like a DEFCON 1 to DEFCON 5, where do you think the Eagles' panic is right now? Zach, we'll start with you. <laughs> 
It's it's as bad as it's been since since 2015, and that's obvious wow. to say they're 0 2. Um, but look, they they have Cincinnati this this week, and then after Cincinnati, they have San Francisco, Pittsburgh, Baltimore. So this schedule's not getting any easier. Um, it's conceivable even if they beat Cincinnati, they're they're one and five, um, and, and maybe they steal one of those games thereafter. But I would say that. Doug and Carson have enough equity, and and Jim Schwartz. They have enough equity that you give them the benefit of the doubt that you're not looking at at, at like a bottom of the league team yet. Um, but they've done little this season to give you confidence they can turn this around. So what 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 helps them is that they're in a division that you can theoretically still get out of, or or, or you can finish second place, and you know you can get two wins against the Giants. You can potentially you can assume you get another win against Washington. Uh, but I think the the confidence in this team is as low as it's been in the Peterson era. But where are you at right now? Well, I, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty low. Uh, and <laughs> if I'm an Eagles fan and what's such a cheery guy though, I'm so surprised. <laughs> well, what is so depressing about it from an Eagles perspective is that, you know, not only are they bad, but there's, there's no hope for the future, like for the short term future. This is not a team that is built to turn things around. Like this is a team that is at the end of its window and is trying to maximize what they have. They're, you know, their top 10 highest paid players are Carson Wentz at the top and then nine guys who are at least 30 by January 1st of next year. Uh, it's all of these guys who are on the downside of their career and they have not had enough uh, pick equity or uh, like impact from the guys who they have drafted over the past few few years who are like coming up to take those spots. I mean, the young guys who excite you if you're an Eagles fan are Miles Sanders, who's a running back, Dallas Goddard, who's like right now a number two tight end, but okay, that's exciting. Uh, Jalen Rager, that sounds good. And then, you know what? You know, Avante Maddox is maybe a starting caliber corner. Jalen Mills is maybe a, a starting caliber safety, maybe. Like Derek Barnett has been a relative disappointment. Andre Dillard has done nothing in two years. Like what? what's exciting? And the scary thing for the Eagles, if the answer is if the answer to that question is Jalen Hurts, because if this yeah. thing goes south, oh man, I was waiting for one that was coming. At some point, the conversation turns to you spent a second round pick on this guy. Uh, you know, if 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 they have a losing record in November and or if they have a losing record in December, uh, it's a conversation the Eagles won't be able to avoid, no matter how well or how poorly Carson's playing. Just Jalen Hurts' presence there. It makes sense on a winning team to have that as a rookie backup, but if it's a losing team, um, it becomes a controversy. I love that we started with Chip Kelly and we ended with Jalen Hurts. Yeah, what a perfect good. coming full circle Eagles conversation. Gentlemen, thank you very much for doing this. I sincerely appreciate it. You guys do a fantastic job. Please go check out the work that Zach and Bo do on The Athletic. Please go listen to their podcast, Birds with Friends with Sheil. Guys, I'll talk to you later. Thanks for having us. Thanks to uh, Joe Thomas for uh, being our opener. <laughs> all right guys thanks talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy usually men just brush it off or blame themselves saying things like i lost my mojo or they avoid it altogether with excuses like i had a long day at work or sorry honey i'm just not feeling it but with roman it's easy to talk about with a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication it's simple safe and totally discreet with roman you get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ed all from the comfort and privacy of your own home a healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. 
Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash maze and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash maze. That's my last name today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. That's GetRoman.com slash M-A-Y-S. GetRoman.com slash maze. And now it's time for another edition of Film School with Ted Wynn. Ted, we wanted to talk about a concept and an idea that a lot of people have just parroted over the course of the offseason and early this season, but hasn't really been analyzed in an in-depth way. And that's just the concept of the Bruce Arians offense. I think people have heard that term a lot as it's related to the Buccaneers and to the transition for Tom Brady, everything else. So we wanted to take a deeper dive at what that actually means. So if you had to describe the Bruce Arians offense and how it differs from other offensive systems, where would you start? I think a good place to start is uh, this longer developing pass routes. So, uh, you know, they, he's aggressive. You know, everybody kind of knows him for his famous quote, no, uh, no risk it, no biscuit. And that's that's his offense. He wants to go heavy play action, take deep shots. Uh, some of his concepts are, you know, you'll find them in other playbooks, but his might be a little deeper. For example, you know, if he's running a sale concept, which is uh, a three receiver concept, outside guy runs a fade, slot guy runs an out route, and most inside guy or running back runs a flat. You know, usually that slot running the out route would be around 12 yards, but, you know, he might have a 16-yard out route or even a 20-yard out route in his offense. Uh, so just things like that. And uh, funny enough, you know, we know Brady loves throwing to tight ends, uh, but this week when he asked about uh, Rob Gronkowski and his targets, he said, we're not throwing the ball 50 times to tight ends. That's what we have receivers for. Uh, so I think, you know, he, he, Brady's going to have to get used to it and Rob Gronkowski's have used to it. Uh, but funny enough, he, he actually loves throwing to running backs and he's not scared to throw deep to running backs too. And, uh, we saw that, uh, when he had David Johnson with the Cardinals and he even threw a deep one to, uh, LaShawn McCoy that he dropped in the end zone, um, this week. Uh, so, so yeah, and, and there's just a ton of route adjustments and conversions in his offense. That's one thing that, uh, surprised me studying his offense. I thought, uh, the Patriots had a lot of option routes and conversions, but he 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 has even more. I mean, uh, and these are like some deeper option routes that uh, it's it's pretty unique to his offense. So if you look at the numbers from 2013 to 2017, Carson Palmer averaged 9.65 air yards per throw with Bruce Arians. It's the second highest mark in the league after <laughs> deep throw king Jameis Winston. Jameis last year with Bruce Arians, a meeting of the minds when it comes to deep ball throws, led the league by a lot at 10.35. In 2012, when Andrew Luck was with Bruce Arians, he was second in the league at 10.2. This is something that Bruce Arians has taken with him everywhere. Every stop of his offensive career in the NFL, whether it was with Ben Roethlisberger in Pittsburgh, Andrew Luck in Indianapolis, Carson Palmer, Tom Brady now. Byron Leftwich is the offensive coordinator in Tampa. Oh, he's the play caller now for the first time in Arians' career. But when I talked to Arians last summer about Byron taking over play calling, he essentially said, the reason I wanted Byron to do this is that Byron thinks like I do. You know, he has the same values. He has the same approach. So this stuff has stayed consistent at every stop of his career. And to a ridiculous extent, here's Drew Stanton, who played for Bruce Arians with both the Colts and the Cardinals, talking about how that approach has remained consistent over the years. He just believes in a system, and he kind of has this confidence about him that, that kind of permeates throughout the entire building. Like, 
from when I first met him in Indianapolis. We had the same exact script for OTA 1 through 15 because he didn't care. It was his stuff. You're going to run it. You're going to learn it. And it would be like, I, I mean, you could literally, to a T, go back to the script that I had in Indianapolis. And five years later in Arizona, the same seven-on-seven seven pass from, you know, <laughs> that was on there. Because it was, it was 88 go or, or you know, 88 bench where the quarterback doesn't have to worry about protection, doesn't have to do anything. It's a max protection. We're going to take a shot down the field. NBA, uh, you know, is is notorious for being known for wanting to take shots. So Drew says that they had the same installation essentially every single year, the first 15 plays during OTAs, which I think is kind of wild. Yeah, and I think, you know, I have a, a good idea of what those 15 plays are. And Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I think the first play that they would install is probably trips right, 80 go, or 88 go. And the number difference is just the protection. That It's hilarious that you say that because in Arian's book, which actually starts with an anecdote about him drinking paint as a child, which is the most Bruce <laughs> Arians thing you could possibly imagine, he describes 88 go as his favorite play. And that's a it's a max protect look with three vertical routes. And the inside receiver either bends the play across the field against a single high safety or takes it deep against a two high safety. And if you watched the completion to Mike Evans last week, the 50-yard one down the middle of the field, that's the play, which is nuts. That just tells you how much of this stuff translates from season to season. So, Ted, when you're looking at those deeper developing routes, and you, I know you talked earlier about how you know, he'll just – edge things a little bit further. Would you say that the overall approach to push the ball down the field with Arians, is it just the structure or do you think that that's kind of coached into his guys about how they're reading from long to short within the offense? It's definitely part of the structure. So the, you know, the landmarks of the routes are going to be a little longer. And I think he also coaches his guys to wait on routes a little bit longer and let things develop. So speaking of those longer developing routes, here's Drew Stanton again. He's got not only a home run section, he's got like a play action shot. He'll try and sneak those those deep shots in anywhere he can. And as a quarterback, like, and being with him for an extended period of time, you grew to love it. And he would do it different ways and put different window dressing on it and do all these things. But the concepts are the concepts and being able to better understand what he's trying to do within it. So, you know, that was the beauty of playing for BA. So we know that the deeper developing routes are a huge part of the Bruce Arians offense. Some of the things we don't know, though, are that he builds options into that offense to protect his quarterback from getting hit too often as those routes develop. When I asked Drew Stanton, about how he would define a Bruce Arians offense. He didn't go straight to deep passes or Kangol hats or any of that. He talked about the control that he gives his quarterbacks with sight adjustments and with hot routes. Let's hear from Drew Stanton one more time. Basically, a sight adjust is a weak side hot. Okay. For lack of a better term. So, like, you know, you might think that you're good on the front. Like, everything is good on the front side. So you're not going to be hot front. But a sight adjust is basically something that's happening on the fly that you need to adapt to as an X receiver. Like, because most of the time in three by one stuff is where it'll come up and X receivers have to be able to see will free safety coming. Now there's ways to correct it or do all these things. Obviously there's, there's multiple layers to it, but most of the weak side things we just call it with, with labels, a side adjust in normal down and distance formations. So that seems like a lot 
on a quarterback's plate, whether it's, you know, having to hold on to the ball a little bit longer. That's a little bit of a different stylistic thing from other ways that other teams play or having to have that control with the site adjustments. So when you're thinking about just the overall workload and mental load on Tom Brady in this offense, what do you think he's had to sift through more than anything else that differs from the approach that he took in New England for all those years? I think first, I mean, you know, he he talked about the language difference and how that was a bit, pretty big challenge for him in the offseason to pick this up. I mean, just an example of um, here here's one play and two different ways of saying it. Uh, for example, like a four verts with a halfback option in New England, he would say gun zero flood right 64 bender HO. In Arians offense, it would be gun trips right 66 jet. And it seems like small difference, but when you have, you know, you're doing something for 20 years and it automatically just re- registers in your brain as one thing, having that extra half second hesitation is, is going to be a bit, bit of a difference. And he's probably picked up a lot of it now, but I'm sure there's still a little hesitation that eventually he'll get over uh, eventually. And like we talked about, you know, uh, Arians wants quarterbacks to let those routes develop, but that's something Brady doesn't really do. He likes making quick decisions, likes, likes getting rid of the ball. So just watching him the last couple of weeks, there are longer developing routes, but Brady's kind of playing it his way where if it's not there right away, he's going to check it down. Uh, but what makes Brady so special is, you know, what separates him from a, a, a you know, check down captain type of quarterback is he knows he has a great feel for when to be aggressive. So he can let those routes develop, but he's just not going to do it as much as Jameis Winston did last year. He's going to check it down and when he needs to, he'll start letting those uh, longer plays develop. So one of the things that I feel like you know, was not talked about enough coming into the season is just the relationships that Arians had had with his quarterbacks over the course of his career. If you go read Arians' book or even the things that were written about that 2015 Cardinals team when they were really rolling, and even conversations I've had with people over the years, you know, Bruce loves having meetings with his quarterbacks the day before the game, on Friday or Saturday, and the quarterback will go through the play sheet and he'll mark his favorite ones. And that's just a collaborative effort that doesn't always exist in every place. And I know they're still doing it in Tampa, even though Bruce isn't the head coach. It's the Byron conversation, but it's collaborative. That's the important thing. There's input from both directions. So when you're thinking about just a middle ground between these two offenses, beyond Brady just becoming more comfortable with letting those things develop, what sort of aspects do you think fit both Brady's tastes and what Arians likes to do that you feel like can kind of come together as they figure out this partnership over the season? Uh, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about it before, but, you know, Brady loves throwing to running backs and taking advantage of that middle linebacker against uh, running back mismatch. And that's that's been a big part of Arians' offense for a long time. So that's a commonality they both ha- have. Uh, I think one thing that they will need to collaborate on, and uh, I think one area where Brady will kind of eject some of his what he knows is when they go no huddle. Um, tip, Arians doesn't hasn't had a quarterback that really went no huddle a lot um, in his recent years. And as we know, Brady loves going no huddle in New England. They had a very complicated uh, system at the line of scrimmage, language system where they could communicate a lot. Uh, I I don't know how developed Arians' no huddle uh, system is, but I think when those two collaborate on that, I think that's where Brady's input is going to be most valuable. I think that, you know, you look back at a lot of those Cardinals teams and even some of the stuff they've done already in Tampa, there's a lot of empty. 
And the New yep. England thrived in empty. I mean, they, you think about even that Super Bowl when they beat the Rams, but beyond that, they loved motioning backs out, having that dictate information to Tom and having him make decisions based on the information. One of my favorite plays that he made against the Panthers last week was a play where Fournette actually motioned out wide in the red zone. And then he waited for Fournette to kind of break back in when he mm-hmm. saw there was a little bit of a scramble drill. And it was a really smart play by Fournette, actually. So that, I think, is a really good example. But just beyond that, the I know he's not as comfortable letting those plays develop. But what you've seen from Brady so far, is there anything physically or with the types of throws on the table for him now that he's either struggled with or you don't think he's going to have an easy time making? Because when I watched him, go, when I went back and watched that game against Carolina last week, I thought that his arm looked live. I thought that he was making a lot of those throws. And it actually, despite what the box score said, encouraged me about what this offense can look like moving forward. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, we we see Drew Brees really struggling to make a lot of throws in New Orleans. And I kind of half expected to see that with uh, with, uh, the Buccaneers after week one and seeing those numbers. But I, I didn't really dive into the film. And when I looked at week two, I saw Brady just throwing dimes and making all sorts of tough throws. So I have no reservations about Brady's arms and making the type of throws that Arians wants. I mean, you look at, you know, he, he made a perfect back shoulder, zipped it to Mike Evans early it's in the beautiful. game. Yeah. And then he, he throws, uh, it was a third and six. He throws an out route, a 12 yard out route from the opposite hash to the opposite sideline. Perfect. Uh, so he, you know, he's able to make these throws. I think, uh, one thing that might be concerning is if he has to take some hits waiting for some routes to develop. Uh, but other than that, you know, Brady Brady could physically uh, make all the throws needed in this offense. And I think watching that throw to Evans, that was my favorite one he made last week because mm-hmm. that really does illustrate the ownership the quarterback has in this type of offense. When I was talking to Drew Stanton about some of those side adjustments, he was describing to me that it's often the backside receiver in a three-by-one set. So that's exactly what Evans was on that play. He was the single receiver to that side. And there's clearly a flexibility and freedom when he's the single receiver to go back shoulder on that throw. You saw as soon as he caught it in the end zone, he pointed right at Brady being like, that's it. That's exactly what I needed there. And that's the type of stuff is going to be cool to watch them figure out because that doesn't happen overnight. Those back shoulder throws, you think about Rodgers and Nelson, for example, those take years of working on the timing and the trust. And I really, like you said, physically, I think he's there. Mentally, I have so much faith in Tom Brady's brain and how much football he's seen to have those plays show up a lot more often as we keep going through the season. Yeah, and, and if you watch that, uh, that that Carolina game, they, they left a lot of yardage on the field too. So his numbers should have been a lot better than what they were. I, I think there were three blatant drops that could have been big plays in that game, including that touchdown to LaShawn McCoy that uh, he should have caught in the end zone. My favorite, I, I tweeted about this earlier today, the drop by Cyril Grayson down the left <laughs> sideline. It's, I felt it was not a good throw. You know, Brady bent that outside more than he had to, and I think it snuck up on mm-hmm. Grayson as a result. But it almost looked like the ball jumped at the end. It hit him in the face. It's comical. And those are just the sorts of tiny miscues that on in this box score, that's an incomplete pass, and we're going on to the next play. It Brady's incompletion percentage takes a ding, all of that. Those things, I think they'll iron out as we keep going through the year. So, all right, Ted, as always, buddy, thank you so much for doing this. And I know I learned a decent amount kind of digging into this. I hope other people did as well. We'll be back next week with our next edition of Film School. And uh, I appreciate the time. I'll talk to you later. All right, talk to you later. All right, guys. 
Thank you so much to Joe Thomas. Thank you to Bull Wolf and Zach Berman for coming on and chat about the Eagles. Really fun show. I had such a good time doing this today. As always, sincerely appreciate you guys listening. Please rate and review the show on your podcast platform of choice. Please subscribe to The Athletic. We have a great promo going on right now, theathletic.com slash football show. I'd really appreciate it. As always, guys, thank you so much for listening. We will be back tomorrow with Lindsey Jones to preview all things week three. Talk to you later. This was The Athletic Football Show.